Hello, welcome to Off Curve. I'm looking good, and I am talking to you about Hearthstone as I am driving around town on errands. It is Friday, June 18th, 2021. We're about eh, two weeks removed from the mini set. It looks like the the meta is more or less stabilized, and we have Masters Tour Dalaran starting in a few hours. Um, so, and we've been assured, I mean, obviously it's happened that there are going to be no balance changes before that, which is nice for the folks who are comp competing. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, all things considered, it feels like the meta is kind of stable and it's not like nothing's really too oppressive. It's, it's kind of in a weird spot where we don't really have too much that's, well, I guess that's not really true because we have Shaman and Demon Hunter where we didn't before. Um, but it, you know, it kind of like the meta is kind of settling into a spot where it is what it is and we've played it and, you know, you either enjoy it or you don't, but I don't think there's anything that, that feels like overly oppressive. Um, you know, the, the classes seem to be balanced, you know, people are complaining about priests, which is good for me. Um, I did get to legend with, uh, death rattle demon hunter. I started out with a, um, a Nizoth list and ended up switching at around Diamond 2 to Draco Cat's Nizoth list version that just goes a little bit faster. Um, Death Rail Demon Hunter's in a decent spot now with the um, with the new cards that we got in the mini set along with the, the nerfs to Paladin. It kind of brought it back up to a reasonable power level. And um, I, I do like the, the Nazothless approach as long as you're not seeing a ton of priest. I think Nazoth is really the tech against priest because sometimes against priest you'll need the third, the third Illidari Inquisitor. But um, when you're not when you're not playing against a ton of priests, like usually the two Illidari Inquisitors will do the job, and like you really want Talon to draw you an Inquisitor so that you have it on eight. It gives you three draws for an Inquisitor. Um, and the other the other thing that it, you don't have to run cards like Fishy Flyer, right? Like Fishy Flyer is probably one of the worst cards in the deck, but you kind of need it if you're playing the Nazoth version just because it's a Murloc that, that does something proactive when, um, when Nazoth hits the board. But if you're not playing Nazoth, you don't need Fishy Flyer. And so that opens up some more, you know, some more early game, which makes the deck a little bit more consistent. Um, I, I know that some of the approaches have been changing. Some people are trying Vectus. Um, that that has mixed results, I suppose. Though I, I I've heard that it's it's good. Um, and you know, it's a matter of like, do you run one Raging Fell Screamer or two? Um, I think we'll probably see, as with everything, we'll see when we get the lists from Dalaran. Um, and we start seeing how things are performing. We'll have a better idea if, like... And again, that's not 100% applicable to ladder because they're different environments. Especially when you have a ban, it does change the builds a little bit. But it'll give us an idea of, like, what approaches are working and which ones aren't. And, and may, may give us some new things to try. Because one of the things that, that happens before a big event like this, especially when it's close to a new set, is a lot of the really spicy stuff gets kept under wraps so that, you know, people can try to take advantage of, of people not having practiced against it at Masters Tours. 
uh, or, or on ladders, so they they can kind of take advantage of the fact that those players aren't familiar enough with the list, and maybe it kind of gives them a bit of an edge, right? So we may see some spicy stuff in a few hours when um, when Dalaran lists are revealed, and then furthermore, once we see what the um, what the win rate is, but you know we'll see. It's it's going to be a little bit harder to follow this particular Masters Tour just because it's it's an Asia-Pac one, so, or Asia-Pac time zone one, so it's all overnight, um, you know, for in the U.S. And, and in Europe, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of comes out of that. So, I wasn't 100% sure what to talk about this week, um, and so I decided to put a call out in the Discord, because it's been... I haven't done a mailbag episode in a long time. It looks like it was October the last time that I did one. So it's been quite a while. And, um, you know, I do I do like being able to answer the questions that are on the listeners' minds and the, the minds of the folks at Discord. So, um, and we got, a, we got a fair amount to work through. Um, so we'll get into that. And, you know, and, and you know, from more and less tangentially related to, to Hearthstone. Um, so Necrodan asks, for those of who are aspiring data analysts and Hearthstone enthusiasts, what are some basics you can reiterate on when it comes to reading, interpreting HS replay and vicious syndicate data? So as far as vicious syndicate data is concerned, there's not really a whole lot to interpret. I mean, there's, there's the stuff that's in gold. It's, it is what it is. Um, the Reaper reports are, will give you some charts and you can filter into them a little bit, but it's pretty hard to drill down, right? So you're not you're you're kind of relying on the vicious syndicate team's analysis to be able to to go off of because you you just can't you can't see behind the curtain. You know what I mean? So there's not really a whole lot that you can really pay attention to or not. I you know it the the report seems to vary based on, you know, some experience that, that the team has with certain classes. I've been pretty vocal in the past few months about being surprised at some of the choices in the priest lists. Um, in particular, I was having a conversation in, in the Discord this week about the fact that Sethic was cut from the list with Cabal Acolyte, which, I mean, I don't particularly care for to begin with, but that's more of a taste thing, um, but was still in the the main, like, normal control priest list, and because Sethic is bad in the mirror, and the reason Sethic is bad in the mirror um, is because the, the mirror is kind of turned from a value matchup into a fatigue matchup, and, and furthermore, there's an additional complication with um, with South Sea Scoundrel, where you really want to stay below eight cards, because if you go if you go above eight cards, then your opponent can Scoundrel and then burn cards from your deck. And and in general, like the value you get from Sethic can be good, but if the value if the the random cards that you're getting from Sethic cost you cards that are coming from your deck that you put there on purpose, then that's that's not a that's not a good trade off. Like the cards that you're getting randomly are never worth as much as cards in your deck, almost never. So, um, so that, that's been kind of, I've been playing a list without Sethic for a while. I've been much happier with it, especially in the mirror. I, I, I don't lose the mirror very often. And that, that's without needing Nazoth or, or, or sorry, Cthune or, 
or um, and without the value from Sethex. You get enough value typically, as long as you don't get blown out by something ridiculous. Um, I even had a game on stream yesterday where my opponent was playing Reliquary of Souls, clearly for the mirror, and ended up getting um, a psyche split on one of them, got them up to like 13, 15, and I still managed to win that game. Like they had two 13, 15, can't be targeted lifesteal Reliquary Primes on board, and, and I managed to win that game. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that you necessarily need that Sethic value. Um, and you can generally get it from your opponent if you really want it with the South Sea Scoundrel. Um, but anyway, so the, you're, you're kind of just relying on what they, what they give you from Vicious Syndicate. HS Replay, I think that the Mulligan stats are good. Uh, played and drawn win rate are, are not to be trusted. I think that the deck win rates are generally very good, um, at least to give you an idea. Like, I think what I, what I typically do is I'll at least look at the meta page more as a um, more as an idea of like what the constellation of decks are. The matchups tab on the meta page is very good, um, just to see like what's out there and you can do an expected win rate and stuff like that. That's generally pretty reliable. Um, and then once I've I've aligned on that, then I'll go to the decks page for only looking at a particular archetype. I don't think it's valuable to look at like what the best deck is on the deck type on the decks tab if you're looking for something to play, but. If you're, if you know what you want, what deck you want to play, and then you're looking at different lists, you know, to compare and contrast and see what you want to play, I think that's very good um, on HS Replay. And in general, what I like, what I like to look at when I look at an individual deck is I look at the win rate graph in the upper right, and I want to make sure that that's trending upward or at least flat, because um, sometimes what'll happen is when you're looking at the decks page on HS Replay. It's showing you the last three days, and three days it can be a lifetime, right? So you want to make sure that the um, the deck that you're playing is still good, even though it's showing up on the top of that page um, because of the limit of last three days. I would love it if HS Replay would let us get more granular with the with um, the time fences, or at least keep the filters consistent between pages. Because one of the things you you do need to realize, especially when you're looking at the mulligan win rate, is that the the individual deck pages usually go to a much higher time fence, sometimes 7 days, sometimes 30. Um, I think it's 30 usually, and you can't reduce it. So to make sure that they have a big enough sample size, which is great, except that when you're straddling metas, then things can get thrown off on the, on the mulligan stats. So do pay attention to that when you're looking at the mulligan stats. It would be great if they had kind of a consolidated mulligan stats, but I don't know really, you could necessarily do that and not not lose some some fidelity. Um, but yeah, that's what I typically use in, in HS Replay. Um, I, I think that they've been getting better. Um, and, and as long as you know what you're looking for and you're looking for things very deliberately and not expecting HS Replay to tell you what to do, then you can, you can be very successful with it. But you do need to be very, very careful about not taking not taking data on face value just because it's or not taking decks and just saying I'm going to be able to win with this just because it's floating to the top of the list and the meta tab in particular is um, based on ex expected win rate not actual historical win rate which is something that you just want to be aware of it's probably a better metric um, you know but again metas shift so so violently and so suddenly 
that I don't, you know, you want to be careful when you're just relying on that. I think that, you know, everything that's in that range is probably equally good. Um, but you don't want to necessarily say, well, this is the best deck, so I'm going to play this, right? You need to, you need to be a little bit more critical in your thinking there. So Farspates asks, are there any cards that you think were mistakes to be included in the core set? And, and I think that, I, I really do think that Doomhammer might have been. I'm surprised that I, I think I'm okay with the fact that Doomhammer exists. I'm surprised that it came over in a completely unchanged. Uh, it's just you know I mean the pro the thing is that the Doomhammer lists are not necessarily like tearing up the meta like they definitely have um, weaknesses. It's not like Doomhammer by itself is like a completely busted card, but it does feel like given that both Rockbiter and Stormstrike exist it's it's just kind of asking for trouble especially the fact that you can equip it for what seems like a reasonable overload like two is a lot but it's not that much given what you're getting but you get four turns of it right and then and it's, it's incredibly hard to remove because most of the weapon removal has been taken out of core, right? Like, weapons in general, I think, are, are a problem that needs to be addressed, kind of. And I don't know if it's like a global rework or if it's just like something like we, ha we need to get some more interesting kinds of weapon removal. Um, I would love to see some, like, spells that do damage to minions or weapons, right? So that you're not giving up something by including weapon removal in your deck. Um, but in any event, right, like, the, the fact that you can just kind of get chipped down by it, and when, it, when the Doomhammer does come down, it, it very often does feel like you can't do much. Like, I was even playing Ooze in the priest list that I've been playing the other day, you know, in recent days, and I, I'm probably going to take it out because it just doesn't do enough, right? Like, Ooze is pretty underwhelming, all things considered, and, and you can't really afford to run two of them because there's not enough weapon decks in the, in the meta right now. But if you're running one, then you need to draw it. You need to draw it on time, and you're either holding it in your hand which means that you're not playing it out, right? Because, like, you can say, oh, well, Ooze is a 3-2, you just play it for 2. Well, against a deck that has weapons, you're not going to do that, right? Like, against a non-weapon deck, sure, then you play a 2-mana 3-2, it's fine. Against a, a weapon deck, like, you're going to hold that forever until you have a weapon to hit with it, because that's the whole reason you're putting it in the deck. And that that's just, like, taking up opportunities from other things. Like, I think Lacanole Hammer's fine, Right? But Doomhammer in particular, it just feels bad, right? Like, it feels bad to just get chunked down for, like, 16 with really nothing you can do about it. Um, and, and especially because you have things like Torrent in that list that can get rid of a big taunt, so, like, taunts aren't really protective. Um, it, it's just kind of... It's the one thing that really does feel bad, and we had, like, a day where Evolve Shaman was back. And that was kind of exacerbating it too, because some of the lists were running Doomhammers, and some of them were running 
the the box spine knuckles which you know first of all this is still in standard how right but, but it's only been around for a year but um you know and that and and that's a that's kind of the similar problem right like if you're if you you're only getting to hit one um you know one swing of it anyway and even if you do that right like the damage is already done so i i've said a few times i would like to have seen gluttonous ooze come in um, that wouldn't even help against Doomhammer, really, just because, like, that it's still only giving you two armor, because most of the damage is additional burst. It's the same thing with, um, with, like, Demon Hunter. But, but I do, I do really wonder why Doomhammer was brought in the way it was, or even if it was, like, made a legendary weapon. Like, I think, that in, according to the lore, Doomhammer is, like, a legendary weapon. It would have been nice if that was a legendary. I understand that Doom, that legendary weapons were not a thing when classic was originally released but they have been since so i don't see a reason why doomhammer is something that we needed two of right um and and then that makes if it was a legendary first of all you would be able to break it and not have to worry about the second one but also like things like cage match custodian would be much worse if you're running a, a deck that's completely around doomhammer right so I think there are things that we could do to Doomhammer to make it feel a little bit less bad, but it does feel bad when you lose to it. But again, it's not a problem, but it does it is kind of a feels bad type of thing. Alright, so Zaj asks, um, with the introduction of Wailing Vapor and Primal Dungeoneer in Wailing Caverns, along with the previous buff to Lilypad Lurker, is Shaman too strong in its current form? So this kind of goes back a little bit to what I was just talking about with Doomhammer, but it's it's more of Shaman as a whole. I don't think Shaman's too strong. I think Shaman needed a lot of help, right? Like, the, the fact that they reworked... They did a pretty substantial rework to Shaman's corset, and it wasn't enough. And... I think that was that that kind of justified all of the the buffs that it got. I, I mean, I think that that the dungeoneer is very good, and 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 shaman really did need something like that, um, just to just to be competitive. And wailing vapor, I think they they pushed elemental shaman pretty hard in in forging the barons, and didn't really have a payoff for it. So I think that it needed, like, like, Wailing Vapor is kind of a fair tunnel truck when you think about it, right? Because, like, elementals are not, not, not as easy to spam as, um, sorry, I'm making a complicated turn. Um, elementals are not as easy to spam as, like, overload cards, right? Um, and... You're, you generally don't... You don't have, like, Discover an Elemental, like, where you have Discover a Spell. Um, and, and for whatever... You know, in Tunnel Trog... And usually when you're overloading, you're getting more than you're paying for anyway. So Tunnel Trog was kind of paying off on that. This is just kind of rewarding you playing Elementals. Welling Vapor, I very rarely see get above, like, a 4-3 before it dies. Um, I mean, it is, it is one other thing that you need to deal with, right? But it, I never see it get huge. Um, and, and Lilypad Lurker, like, I think it's a strong effect that's out, that's outweighed by the fact that it can be extremely awkward to use. 
right? Like you're you're generally like playing an elemental in, in ugh, words. Wow, in intentionally. That's a. I did not expect that to be the word that was going to trip me up today, but here we are. You, you know, so you're playing an elemental intentionally the prior turn, expecting that you're going to have a target for the lurker, and if you don't, well, then what? Right? If it's your last elemental, then you get into this choice of well, do I play a five mana five six, or do I hold it? And if you hold it, you may not get to play. You may not get the the effect for two turns. Um. You don't run enough elementals that you're always guaranteed that you're going to be able to chain it. Um, and, and, you know, that's not in every deck either. I think that it's good that Shaman has a viable strategy, and it doesn't feel like it's overpowered now. Uh, because Shaman literally had nothing before, you know, two weeks ago. Shaman just did not have any viable decks whatsoever. And if it's got like one and a half viable decks, I think that's good. I don't think it's overpowered. I think that there, I, I think Doomhammer again feels bad when you lose to it. But I think like the straight elemental ones are are generally okay. Like it does feel a little bit bad when you get, when, when your opponent gets like um, light shower elemental off of a, off of a, um, the, the one that gives you a random elemental in your hand. Like, that sometimes feels a little bad. But, like, there's variants, fine. But, it, you know, Shaman doesn't really ever feel overpowered um, unless they're chipping you down with Doomhammer. So I think it's okay. Um, and it's going to be a matter of, like, when we get the next set, well, what else are we getting that's going to counterbalance that right now? I think that they've had to nerf a lot. And so whatever's left feels powerful because we haven't really gotten anything really super powerful to replace it. Like, there wasn't... There really was not a lot in Wailing Caverns to to juice up the power level, which it shouldn't, really, because that's the kind of line you have to draw with a small set like that, that if you, you can't really, you know, juice the power level too much because then you're power spiking everywhere, right? And then... And it's going to be disproportional because, like... You're not always going to hit on everything. So, you know, I think this is fine. I think as long as the power levels kind of come up proportionally with the next set, I think we'll be okay. I think it's okay for Shaman to be powerful because it's it's powerful in a way that makes it viable. Just because, like, the power level in the meta has been still reasonably high. And every deck... I mean, Constructed is always a format about unfair decks doing unfair things, right? And and some of the things that Shaman does is unfair. But that's what you need to do in order to be competitive in, in Constructed. You're not winning games with a fair deck, ever. There's never... I don't think there's ever been, like, a fair deck that's been meta-relevant in, like, the history of the game. Maybe there have been one or two. But most of them do something unfair. And Shaman does too, and I think that's okay. Um, but I don't think it's too strong right now. I think it's it, it's it's proportional, and I think this meta is about as healthy as we're going to get, given the number of cards that we have available. So Andrew is living at, is is clearly, you know, trying to get me on a rant. Um, which sets Priest 
uh, priest cards made you more viscerally upset? Karazhan or Wailing Caverns? So it's Wailing Caverns and it's not close. Um, so like everyone remembers or, or everyone... Okay, so if you have not been playing the game for years, I shouldn't say everyone remembers because this is actually, oh gosh, 2016. So that's like five years ago. Um, so after the first rotation... Priest was not a playable class. There was a joke going around from Ben Bro that some, that there was like a unicorn priest that nobody had discovered yet, and it didn't exist. Um, it, because Priest was just completely unplayable, and it was just not good enough. And so they did a big reveal of the first few cards in the set, and I think they did it in the middle of like a tournament or something. And there were only three cards per class because it was an adventure. And one of the cards was... Uh, the card that they decided to reveal first was Purify. Which was... I don't remember what it cost, but it was Silence a Friendly Minion Draw Card. Which we, we would use it later in something like Silence Priest, but Silence Priest was not a viable thing at the time. And there was... Among the priest-loving community, there was uh, much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um... So, and that card was, I mean, it was not really playable until the following standard year. That said, that's what most people remember from that set. The other two cards in that set were Onyx Bishop, which single-handedly made Priest playable at the time, which was 3-4 uh, Reviva, uh, Resurrect a Friendly Minion that died, which, I mean, it wasn't a great archetype, but it was an archetype. You'd generally play like an injured blade master and then try to resurrect it, and hope that you didn't that the, when you drew the second one when you play the second one you didn't get another onyx bishop back. It was not a fantastic archetype, but at least it was viable. It was something that made priest playable, and then priest of the feast was also very good. Priest of the feast was a three six. Um, whenever you play, whenever you cast a spell, heal your opponent, heal your your hero for I think three, and and priest of the feast was played a lot. Especially once, once um, Reno Priest became a thing, or Raza Priest became a thing. I'm pretty sure Priest of the Feast was part of that, too. Um, so Priest of the Feast was a card that was played pretty consistently. So, like, there were two playable cards and one card that they should not have revealed first. As opposed to what we got in Wailing Caverns, which was a pile of trash. Um, so, like, Cleric of Anshi is garbage. I know this is a this is a controversial thing. I know people disagree with me. There, at least as priest exists right now, you do not want to be drawing more cards out of your deck usually. And if you want to do that, you can play Thrive in the Shadows, and it's not conditional. Cleric of Anshi relies on you having something to heal, which, as anyone who has tried to clear with Zyrella will tell you, is not always the case. Um, it, it still costs you three mana for a one-two draw card that's clogging up your raise dead pool. I know I said this all in the card review, but I'm saying it again because I'm saying it with experience. And in in the mirror, we just talked about it, it is a fatigue matchup, not a value matchup. You do not want to draw out of your deck in the fatigue matchup in a mirror. You don't want to do it. So Cleric of Anshi is not is not good. The the Dungeoneer, again, we don't want to be drawing out of our deck. If we can help it. And they're, the heal, the holy spells are not the ones we want to discount. I've seen it played like once. And I run into a fair number of priest mirrors. And against all odds, I have tried it numerous times. 
And if you do not have exactly Wave of Apathy, it is very, very hard to get value out of it. There have been a few games where I picked it early expecting I was going to be able to get value out of it off of like a palm reading or um, or a renew or something, and it literally sat in my hand and rotted the entire game. It's it's just straight up worse than Shadowward Ruin, and it's not close. Like, it, it's something we don't really need a whole lot more board clears in Priest to begin with, and certainly that one we don't need. It's just extremely awkward, and it's hard to manipulate without exactly Wave of Apathy, and you really... I don't think you want to be playing Wave of Apathy in your deck. I know Vicious Syndicate thinks that the the Cabal Acolyte list is better. I don't think it's worth it just for against all odds and, and Cabal Acolyte. Even if you're making your opponents in the Zothworks, it's, it's not worth it. So, it, yeah, it's not close. It, it Wailing Cavern's card quality was, like, way be, way below Karazhan. It, and it's it, it's not even close. Like, getting two playable cards versus zero is... I, I, I ran the numbers, and two is more than zero. So, Pasca asks, what are my expectations or wish list for mercenary modes and what do I what do I hope is going to be in it and and my answer is going to be unsatisfying but very simple in that I have none I which is not to say I'm not interested in it I am um but it's way too far away and there's way too little to go on for me to want to get any expectations <clears throat> this is actually something I talk to my my 14 year old about a lot because she follows like all of the you know the gaming news like breathlessly <clears throat> and we've had a lot of conversations about you know her coming up with like wacky things that she thinks is going to happen and I keep telling her like don't get your hopes up because if you get your hopes up and it doesn't happen you're going to be left down right and, um, and and I think this is kind of the same thing right like they told us extremely late. They told us the name and that it's happening. Basically. And everything else is kind of up to um, uh, up to our own imagination. It kind of reminds me of when No Man's Sky was announced a few years ago. And like it, it sounded like it was going to be everything to everyone. And the more that the, the devs talked, like the, the clearer it was that the game was not <clears throat> nearly as ambitious as people were making it out to be because they've released so they, they'd given such so little information that people had kind of built up this idea of what the game was in their head and there was no way that the game was ever going to live up to those people's expectations the game had its own problems but the, a lot of it was expectation setting so I'm kind of there with, with mercenaries we've heard nothing effectively and I don't want... If, if I start getting excited about what I'm going to make it in my head based on the little information that I have, there's no way I'm not going to be disappointed. I know that's the way my brain works. It may not be everybody's, but definitely mine, right? So um, I'm, just, I'm just basically forgetting it exists until they have a demo or, um, or a beta or something. Because... There's enough to there's enough to play right now, without um, you know without kind of pinning my hopes on that, right? Like I hope it's great. I hope whatever it is is really cool. Um, but I'm not I'm I'm not really kind of spending any time thinking about it 
until they have something to show us. I, it's just healthier for me. But I know not everybody engages that way, but that's kind of what's healthy for me. So Chwell asks, should they revert the uh, Paladin nerfs to um, to Hand of a Doll and First Day of School to make Pla Paladin playable again? And, and I don't think so. And the the reason is uh, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that. First of all, those play patterns were awful, right? Like, I, I don't, I, I, a lot of what made the last meta feel bad was just that Nazoth Paladin just was going to do what it did, and it didn't really matter what the opponent did. And, and the fact that it took like three sets of nerfs to get Paladin out of the top is kind of speaks to that. And I, and I think that again. When you have more cards in the meta, maybe those play patterns aren't as um, as oppressive. But I think that in a four-set meta, like, the power level of Paladin was unacceptable. And I think that the other thing is that we need to keep in mind that, again, it's four sets, right? So if Paladin's already at this power level and then they're going to get more like where where do they end up right so i'm okay with them being unplayable for like a month and then them getting cards that will give them other play patterns without being completely overpowered right because ultimately whatever they're going to print would have to be so much better than what they had now without these nerfs that um, that it really, it really would have been, um, it, it would have led to power creep or the alternative is they would have toned down what they gave them so significantly that we'd be right back here, right? Like we go through this cycle with classes a lot where, okay, well they're so overpowered, so we can't give them any more cards. So then they go through like, they go through the rest of the year basically being what they are and then we get to the following year, they haven't gotten anything in three sets when all the other classes were getting cards consistently, and then they're trashed here. And then you have to power creep them in order to get them to be viable again. And it's just like, it's a, it's an endless pattern. So I would rather they take a step back for a month and not put them in a position where we can't give Paladin anything else, rather than Paladin just is, you know, and... and rather than, you know, reverting these nerfs because we think that they're going to be playable now. Like, honestly, I don't know about Hand of a Doll. The first day nerf needed to happen. Three one-drops with a pool like that is, is was not acceptable, right? And it's clear that even if we, um, even if we say that we're going to have more cards in the pool, like, the, the design direction is clearly that we're not printing duds unless they're priest. Um, sorry, <laughs> but, but they're, they're, they're trying not to print duds, right? So even then, like giving them three pulls out of a one mana, a one drop pool is always going to be really powerful. And so I think it's fine to, to nerf first day and leave it like that. Hand of a doll, 
is a card that's been in every Paladin deck for a year and a half. I think it's fine for it to take a step back and stay that way. And again, if it allows them to get more variety in the stuff that they're going to print, then great, right? Um, I, I think it, it's it's healthy to give Paladin a minute. And I think, honestly, like, I, I'm speaking for myself here, but I'm probably not alone in saying that I'm kind of tired of Paladin, and I was kind of tired of Paladin when they made the nerfs. Like, playing around secrets every game is just mentally exhausting. And it's not fun. Because no matter what, you're going to step in something. And it's like that constant feeling of like, you know, way too many things to think about in, in a limited amount of time. Like normally in a Hearthstone turn, like you have a fair amount of time on your opponent's turn to figure out a strategy. And like, yeah, you're reacting to what they do. But then you have your entire turn plus their entire turn to figure it out. Secrets take that away from you because you need to start by figuring out what the secrets are and then adjusting your turn on the fly from there, which is fine when it's one, right? When there's one secret, maybe two secrets, maybe the secret stuck around for a little while, then it's not as bad. When there's constantly secrets on the board and constantly secrets coming into play, like it just gets mentally exhausting to continue to do that. I don't know, and it's the kind of thing that I've noticed when I've been playing around them, and it's even if you play around them successfully, it's still so much extra mental energy you have to expend to deal with the secrets. And I've felt, I think I felt better with less Paladin in the meta because there are fewer secrets to deal with, right? Um, just because you don't have that kind of mental tax on you. Like, and, and you, you can definitely notice the difference, right? So like, if there's a way to make it less reliant on secrets or, you know, make it less prevalent, like Paladins with secrets would be fine if it wasn't like a third of the games, right? And I'm not convinced that if we reverted those nerfs, that it wouldn't go back to being a third of the games because everything else that they tried hadn't really had the impact. So I think that it's, it's healthier for the game not having Paladin in that state and maybe in a five set meta, when the other classes have more options to be able to deal with stuff, then maybe that will, it'll fee, it won't be quite like the best thing to do. So everyone will be doing it. Okay. So a couple of questions about snacks because we have to do that. So Beastwatch asked what ice cream I got. I, I actually, I've been on an Italian ices thing for a while. Um, but I did get some Tillamook old fashioned vanilla for the children. Um, so that was the ice cream purchase of, of the day. And, and Samurai Flea is asking, what are my go-to snacks and favorite frozen pizza? So I'm, um, right now my favorite frozen pizza is the Trader Joe's has like Bambino, um, pizzas, which are like these little mini pizzas. They come like two to a, let you, you make like two of them at a time. Um, and those are very good. I, I, it was DiGiorno single serve, but now... I've moved on to these Trader Joe's Bambinos and they're very, very good. And they're better than the DiGiorno. Um, I have been sampling a lot of frozen pizza over the last year. <laughs> so I have strong opinions, but the, the Trader Joe's Bambino are my current favorite. And um, typically what I, I'll, I'll have like some popcorn, um, usually like either Skinny Pop or like the Boom Chicka Pot Kettle Corn. They come in like the individual like lunch, lunch, um, lunch sack bags. So I'll get those. Um, I've got, I get peanut butter pretzels. 
those are pretty good. I usually have a bowl of either cinnamon or blueberry checks for breakfast and like a Luna bar. And then, yeah, and, and, the, and then the ices. And that's pretty much, I, I just kind of graze. I have like a little, a little container of like snacks that I keep in my office. Half because I don't want the children to steal them from me. And half because I'm in meetings so constantly that I very often can't like leave my little space to actually go get something. So I just have it like within arm's reach, which is, is kind of dangerous because like, you know, I'll snack, uh, you know, unintentionally if I'm not careful, but the alternative of just like being hangry all the time is, uh, is not nearly as good. Okay. And the last question is from Ridiculous Hat who says, why does enterprise grade software vary so wildly? wildly between I wish I had access to this at home for all sorts of stuff and this program makes my day works with very little middle ground so I think that so that the thing that you kind of need to understand with this is I don't even know if this is an actual serious question or not but you're going to get a serious answer because that's just what we're doing um but at least for the latter the way you buy enterprise software is very different than the way that you buy like a program for yourself, right? Like if you're going to go buy, like, let's say you're going to buy like some, an audio editing tool, right? Like you're going to look at logic. You're going to look at Adobe audition. You'll look at how much it costs and you'll look at like what it does. And then, and, and you know how easy it is to do the thing that you're going to do probably fi figures pretty well into that. Right. So, and then you'll make a decision based on that and then you'll be happier. You won't, but you, you've kind of made your decision. When IT, when you, when you go through an IT purchasing process and I've been through a bunch of these and they're brutal, it's like super by committee because you're spending like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on this thing. And so you get everybody involved. Everybody gets an opinion. And a lot of it is just like, there's a checklist and it needs to do these things. And whether or not like these things are, are reasonable or not. Like these are the things that the thing that the software needs to do. And that's all that matters. The actual people using the software are usually not the ones who are getting a say in it, right? Like it's, it's the managers and the managers, managers, and there's, you know, there's costs and who can cut a deal and whatever. There's like a whole bunch of things that go into it. And can I actually do my job with this is usually actually the last thing that anybody cares about because it just doesn't figure in like, like actual, like ease of use and quality of life, like really does not fit into it. And uh, except in rare circumstances, maybe at smaller companies, it does at, at larger companies. It very rarely does because it's less, it, it's, can it do the thing that I need it to do? It doesn't matter how painful it is. Right. And sometimes it, and it's, what happens is that because everything is a checklist, then all of these products need to do everything for everybody. So, you know, you've seen, like, we've talked about like the client, the Hearthstone client, how many things it's doing. Imagine that times on like another order of magnitude. So all these, all these software packages have all these little checklist things because they can't be lean because if you don't do the one thing that this big client wants you to do, then you don't get that sale. So it's just like, it, it's everything that's bad about software development all packed into one thing. Cause the people, everything's around the checklist. And then, so it's just about how many features can you cram into this thing in order to get a sale? And nobody cares about what it's like to actually use those features when you get them. It's like there, I, there I fixed it, but like as a, as a service.
Um, but sometimes it's great, right? Like sometimes you'll get a company that actually does care about it and, and that'll be, that'll be the exception. And then when those things happen, and, and I think usually those kinds of things are consumer software that's being sold to an enterprise as opposed to like actual enterprise software. Cause like actual enterprise software, like something like Microsoft teams or whatever, like nobody cares. Nobody cares what your user experience is as long as it does the things. But like if you're, you know, buying, I don't know, Tableau is a bad example because that's a piece of trash too. But, you know, if there's some sort of like an enterprise tool that, you know, it really does need user adoption to get, then then you'll get the um, the user experience stuff in. But yeah, IT is, IT purchasing is miserable. And I do more, I, I deal with that more than I would like. And it's, it's not fun. And no part of the whole process is fun. Um, but it, it's kind of like, that's what you have to do in order to get those big, those big contracts. Cause it's like when you're selling a, a big for a lot to a few customers, then you have to make everybody happy as opposed to like, you can just kind of put your product out there and take it or leave it. All right. So that's going to do it for this episode. So thanks to everybody who sent in questions. You made my show prep a lot easier. That's for sure. Um, as always, you can find any links mentioned in this episode or any episode at offcurve.com. You can also, if you are prepping for Masters Tour qualifiers, um, or, well, I mean, Masters Tour Dalaran will already have started by the time that, um, that this episode is live. But, um, if you are look, you know, prepping for qualifiers or looking for Masters Tour Dalaran deck lists, um, offcurve.com slash Masters Tour is your place for that. I actually just split out the card inclusions, um, tabs to its own page to help with performance for both. So now there's two pages under that section. Um, so, you know, you can explore that as you're at your leisure. Um, you can also follow the show's account at off curve for announcements for when, um, new episodes go live. You can follow me on Twitter at wiki good for that and all so much more. Um, I stream, uh, twice a week, Mondays, 8 PM Eastern Thursdays, at 7 PM Eastern, um, at twitch.tv slash FM. So, um, would love to have you there. And uh, you can also join the Discord, which is a lovely and um, wonderful group of people who are very kind and helpful um, at discord.offcurve.com. We'd love to have you there as well. So thanks as always for listening. Um, Enjoy the Masters Tour and um, be good to each other. We'll talk soon. Have a good one.